0: Good morning. I'm gonna go off script for just a minute. Tech people, hang on. I found out that for some reason, the people online this morning are watching an earlier service, so it's just us, folks so like i 'm going to relax a little bit and just I just want you to know this is unusual, and i don 't get to do this very often, but you seem far away, but i 'm just going to relax and talk to you all, okay, so that just I just wanted you to know I feel good about this so and as uh, Scott said we 're in our second week of hope month here, Grace. Um, you know, hope Month is a time each year when we stop for a month and everybody together, adults and kids and Teenagers and everybody, all through the church, we work together to focus on one of the six broken places. And as Barry said last week, this year's uh, Hope Month series, which we're calling "Never Alone," Never Alone, is on the focusing on the broken place of isolation. And I have to say that this broken place has become particularly relevant during the last few months. Uh, Last week, Barry began the series by giving us some stark statistics related to the damage that isolation is bringing into people's lives, and he told us that they found that the damage from isolation touches all aspects of our being, our bodies and our minds and our spirits. And some of you may recall that I've actually spoken on this broken place in the past. In fact, I spoke on isolation just as recently as this past March, and every time I have talked about feeling alo- people feeling alone and isolated, I have received a virtual tsunami of responses from people who are either personally feeling isolated or from people who have friends or family members who are living in circumstances of deep loneliness. Um, and now sadly, and can you believe it, we're six months into the pandemic. And now almost everybody that I talk to has some sense of being separated from other people in this new world of ours of social distancing and mask wearing and all of this. And I'm sure it's obvious to you why we chose to focus on this broken place of isolation during this year's Hope Month. Isolation is everywhere. It's everywhere. But as Barry said last week, we are convinced that the circumstances that we find ourselves in now due to the COVID-19, they don't give us license to continue to drift further and further apart. Now, our hope is that during this year's Hope Month, we'll be drawn closer together as we focus on bringing healing to those around us who are suffering from isolation. And our ultimate intention this month is to give us all hope. I'm going to say, no, not just hope, but confidence. Confidence that the battle against isolation is one we can win. We don't say this lightly. We strongly believe that through the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we can see isolation defeated. We really believe this. And our confidence comes from the fact that the church, and I'm talking about the church with a capital T, the church, and the local church, I'm talking about Grace Church, they are bo- this is all at its core founded on community, about belonging and sharing our lives and caring for one another. This is what church is supposed to be about. And I'll say it again, we believe that there is hope that the church can win the battle of isolation and this hope comes right out of God's Word. And one of the places where God's Word tells us that we should battle isolation and that we can win is found in the letter that Paul the Apostle wrote to the Christians in Rome. It's a letter that we now call the Book of Romans. And today we're going to look at a small section of this letter in the anticipation of finding hope and confidence. So let's all turn in our Bibles to the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. I'm unsure whether the house Bibles are still out. I think some are in the room, but that would be page 944 if you have a house Bible. But let's all turn to the 12th chapter of the book of Romans and see what God has to say to us today about finding victory over this scourge of isolation. But before we get into this, I want to pray for us. Lord, I ask that you guide me and my words, that what we say here represents your heart, and that we are um, changed by spending time in your word today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, before we get into this, I want to give you a little bit of background about the letter the book that we call the Book of Romans. As I said earlier, it was written by the Apostle Paul, who Paul was a primary leader in the early church, and he wrote this letter to Christians who were living in Rome. But Paul had never been to Rome. He didn't know these people, and they did not know him at all. this was He's writing to people who may have heard of him, but he didn't know who they were. And he had a plan though. He had a plan that he was going to travel through Rome and stay there a while on his way to Spain. And what he'd heard through the grapevine was that there were serious issues in the Roman church between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And Paul wanted to address these issues through his letter before he got to Rome so that maybe the problem would get fixed before he got there and he wouldn't have to deal with it. But he knew he needed to address these problems in a way that showed those Roman Christians that, they, that he was somebody that they needed to take seriously. And so he sent them this letter And I just have to say, this letter oozes with authority. It just oozes with it. In fact, the first 11 chapters are some of the most deeply theologically written chapters in the whole of the Bible. And they address that problem of Jewish Christians and and Gentile Christians fussing with each other and they, they address this problem, those first 11 chapters do, in a way that is brilliant. But I have to be honest, those first 11 chapters can be really heavy reading. But what they do is they prove that the respect and the authority that Paul had throughout the rest of the church was well-deserved and that the Roman Christians better listen to him. He knew what he was talking about. And then right at the beginning of chapter 12 where we're going to look today, we get these words. Chapter 12 begins with these words, and so. Now that's, that's what it says in the NLTR house Bible. Other, that's an okay translation. Other translations say things like, therefore, or because of this. and. The truth is, it's just one little tiny Greek word there. The word is "oun," and "oun" is a connecting word that meant something like this. Now that I have successfully made my case, I've told you why Jews and Gentiles in the church need to get along. I've successfully made this case, and now you need to listen carefully to my advice about moving forward. This one little word, oun, shifts the entire focus of Paul's letter from this deep theological reflection to very practical advice about how Christians, especially Christians who are at odds with one another, should stop being at odds with one another and move on to living in a different way. So one word changes everything in this letter, And so, we're going to start reading where it gets practical. Now, what I'm going to do is just read some and then talk about it, okay? So, is that okay with everybody if I do it that way? Okay, I just want to make sure. Okay, here we go. Here's verse 1. It says, and so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living, holy sacrifice, the kind you will find acceptable, this is truly the way to worship Him. Now, what Paul says here is something that has never been said before. As far as I can tell, I know there are hints to this idea in the Old Testament, but no one, to my knowledge, had ever specifically talked about sacrifices being living. The Greek word that gives us sacrifices actually means Something that dies so something else can live. And in the ancient world, sacrifices were common. They were gifts to the gods. And in the end, all sacrifices that involved bodies of any kind, generally animal bodies, but they, all those animals ended up what? Dead dead. It's ending a life when we talk sacrifice. Now, I know that anytime we start talking about sacrifice, it's weird to us, killing things like this. But Paul's actually saying something that isn't weird at all, and it's this. He's saying this, when we live our lives showing that everything about us, everything about us has been completely given over to God, when all that we do and all that we say is a sign of how thankful we are for what God has done for us. Then our life becomes worship that pleases God and it becomes a living sacrifice. Now, these verses in Romans, they are seeped seeped in sacrificial talk that relates to the Jewish sacrificial system, and we we don't have time to go into that now. Just take my word for it. It's all over the place in the very few words that we have, but this is what we need to hold on to when we read these verses. It's this, that how we live every moment of every day is important to God. And I'll say it again, when we live our lives showing that everything about us has been given over completely to God, when everything that we do and everything that we say is a sign of how thankful we are for what God has done for us, then our life becomes worship that pleases God, and this is the kind of life that God will refer to as a living sacrifice what Paul says next grows right out of his call for people to live a living sacrifice kind of life, completely given over to God. He says, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, and it's pleasing and perfect. Now, the question that we need to ask when we read this verse is, changing the way we think about what behaviors and what customs of this world? Well, Paul sets out to answer that very question in verse 3. Now, what he does first is he reminds everybody of who's talking to them. He says, because of the privilege and the authority God has given to me, I give you each this warning. So he's saying, I'm Paul, listen up. And then he says, don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. The first thing that Paul says that we need to be certain has changed is the way we think about our own importance. That's the very first thing that he says needs to change in our minds, the way we think about things. The behavior and the customs of the secular first century world were all about bragging. Now this is counterintuitive to us, but being able to publicly and haughtily express an overblown opinion of your own self-worth, was thought to be virtuous in the first century. And this haughtiness was slipping into the world of the Roman Christians and the Roman Christians were bragging about having been born a Jew or a Gentile and Paul says, measure yourself by the faith that God has given us all and the faith that God has given us all is a faith that said what? Jesus died for everyone, everyone. Everyone is exactly the same in God's heart. In fact, Paul seems to be saying that you truly can't learn God's will for you until you've set aside any thoughts that you are better than anybody else. Then Paul goes on in verse 4 to paint a picture of how these things are supposed to be. It says, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is encouraging others, then be encouraging. And if it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Now this image of the body all the parts of the body working well together to make things function the best they can in the world was not invented by Paul. In fact, ancient philosophers used this image to talk about how society should work, and ancient historians had spoken about the military in using this image, and so Paul was now using what was a well-known image to speak specifically about the way the Christian community should work, and his point was this, that we all want every part of our own bodies to function well, and so does God. He wants all of the parts of his body, the church, no matter what role each part plays, to be functioning at their best. Now, you'd think that this would have been self-evident to people, but Paul must have known from what he'd heard about things happening in the Roman church that he needed to remind them that we are all in this together, all of us, and no part is more important than any other part, whether you be Jew or Gentile. It's all working together. And then he says this in verse 9. He says, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Now, the word that Paul uses here that we translate don't pretend is the word onhippocritas. Onhippocritas. Do you hear an English word in that word? Onhippocritas. Hypocrite, you see that? It comes right straight out of this word. Now, the word hypokritos means an actor, it's just an actor, somebody who pretends to be somebody that they aren't. On who hypokritas means don't be an actor. And Paul was saying that the essence of hypocrisy, especially in the church, is when you pretend to be someone that you really aren't, when you say that you love someone and you don't care about them at all. It's just don't do that. And good, I mean, we can all relate to that. And the word that Paul uses for love here is the one Greek word that everybody knows agape. Agape. It's the highest form of love in the Greek world. It's a word that, it's a love that when somebody does whatever is best for someone else while never expecting anything in return. An interesting thing about agape, um, it's, it's all over in the Jewish version of the Old Testament. They use it in the Jewish version of the Old, or the Jewish Greek version. You, you see on the Greek version of the Old Testament. When they did it, agape's in there. And it's all over in the New Testament. It's everywhere in there. But for a long time, scholars didn't think that word really existed, that Christians and Jews made it up. Because they didn't use the word very often, because you know what? Nobody ever really loves anybody that way. Nobody ever is willing to do the best for somebody else and never get anything back. And that's the way that God loves us, and that's the way we're supposed to love one another. This is a powerful concept. Paul says Christians are to love one another with the highest form of love. And then he adds, hate what is wrong. And what could be more wrong than just pretending to love somebody when you don't even care about them? And then he writes, hold on to what is good. And then he tells us what's good. He says, love one another with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Now, in the verse before, Paul used the word agape to talk about the kind of love we should have for one another. But here in this verse, Paul uses a different word for love. And the word he uses is philos. Philos, and it is a word for love between family members. We know this word, Philadelphia, the city of what? Brotherly love, Philadelphia. That's where this word where's used. And uh, it's a word for the love between brothers and sisters mostly. It's a sibling love. And Paul is saying that even though you Romans, some of you are Jews, and some of you are Gentiles. You're from different cultural backgrounds. You are from different ethnic groups. You look at the world differently. I get all that, but you are to love each other as family. You are to love each other as brothers and sisters. And Paul had a good reason for saying this. Um, It was very common in the ancient world, in the first century, that when a Jewish person or a Gentile person followed Christ, their family would disown them. And they would be shunned by their family members. And the place where new Christians went to find family was where? The church, the church. We even have the phrase, you must be what? Born again and we're baptized. All these things are symbols of being born into a new family. And Paul is saying, you need, this is what is good. To treat one another like family. You are to find joy when other people get honor. And you are to want the best for someone else. And you are to stand with one another in good and bad. And then Paul goes on to say, Here are some ways that make the family relationships work best. He says, never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically and rejoice in the confident hope and be patient in trouble and keep on praying. This is all good stuff. But then he says this, and now we get to the core of healing the broken place of isolation. He says, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. What Paul has done is he's connected people who are in need with this idea of practicing hospitality. They come together, and the first thing I need to tell you is this: that the word that gives us hospitality is the word phylloxenia. Philoxenia. And it meant something very different to the f- people who read this letter the first time, then our word hospitality means today. Today, when we think of hospitality, we tend to think of people who, if they're hospitable, that means that they they love to invite their friends over and have a nice dinner party. Or they like to have a comfortable space where people can gather and be friends together. Hospitable are people like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's, that's what hospitality is in our world, is being Happy to have guests. But Philoxenia didn't have much to do with that word, or that idea. Philoxenia meant willing to open your home and your life to travelers who were absolute strangers, people who were in need of safety and a place to stay as they traveled through a strange town. Now, In the ancient world, most people never traveled more than five miles in any distance from their home in their entire life. And when you had to travel, even if you had to travel 30, 40, 50 miles for any reason, you were maybe changing languages, you were definitely going to a place where no one knew who you were, and travel in the ancient world except on the big Roman roads, the major Roman roads. Almost all travel was highly dangerous. And they didn't have inns or hotels like we have. They had a few inns. I read a really interesting document that was a categorization of the ends of the ancient world and they categorized them by the number of cockroaches that you would find in the bed that you were sleeping in. That's, most people didn't want to stay in those places. And so when people traveled for whatever reason, they were about as isolated and as alone as people could be in the first century. And first century Christians were called to keep an eye open for these kind of travelers so they could open their homes and open their family's life to these people. It says, come and find safety with us. Hospitality was the love of strangers no matter what, where they might have come from or what reason they had for traveling so far away from home. Last week, Barry said that the path out of isolation begins with dignity and this is absolutely true for Philoxenia. It is seeing the dignity of every needy, lonely person who comes across your path and taking the risk to bring them into the family. And Paul says, be eager to practice this kind of hospitality. Be eager. So let's put all of Romans 12, 1 to 13 together. First, we are to all of us give our lives, all of our lives as sacrifices to God, that's first. Second, we're to have a sane estimate of how important we are. Third, we are to do our part to help the body of Christ function as well as it can function. Fourth, we are to truly love one another like family And finally, we are to proactively be looking for ways to help others in need, particularly when that need is relief from isolation, from being alone in the world. And Paul's call here is for the church to step up, step up. And Barry said last week that we're gonna be calling on Grace Church to step up through this whole series. And I don't think the message of this passage is particularly spiritual brain surgery. People are in need, they are isolated and alone and we are called to proactively give them dignity and to love them honestly and openly move into their places of loneliness even if it inconveniences us, even if it's difficult and feels uncomfortable. We are to show the lonely hospitality. We are to live phylloxenia in ways that overcomes and heals the brokenness of isolation. Now, for the first century Christians, that meant that when you see a traveler out in the street who looks lost and uncertain, you invite them into your home. And for us, it means proactively looking for ways to move into the lives of those that we know are isolated. I mean, the elderly, we're sending cards to the elderly. I mean, my goodness, the elderly in care facilities or simply alone in their homes. I had a man call me on Monday of this week who had no idea I was preaching on this sermon, this topic. He called me from Florida, he was an old friend, and his wife, who is my age, had had an, uh, an aneurysm four years ago and she has been in a nursing home for four years. And he called into here saying, tell your people, tell your people, that my wife has not had a physical touch in six months, and I'm not doing that well either. Please tell them to reach out to somebody and let them know that they matter. I said, okay, Johnny, I'll do it. I'm telling you, I'm telling you. And another thing that's surprised me is how many young mothers have contacted me. (laughs) They've got kids at home that they're having to now educate And they're trying to work from home, and they just feel trapped. They're trapped. And teenagers, goodness, they've been separated from their friends and the activities that give them life for months. And they're people who have other health issues, and they're constantly worried that if they go out in the world that they'll catch the virus. And they're single people. I've talked to single people who are terribly isolated because they work from home and they don't know where it is safe to go. And, you know, I could go on and on and on listing lonely and isolated circumstances and people living in those circumstances, but what is most important is this. Paul's letter tells us straight up that it's our responsibility. It's the church's responsibility to proactively look for these people and make them family members, to offer them phylloxonia. Hospitality. I learned about this at a really early age. Um, I went to North Central High School. Did any of you go to North Central High School? One? Two, okay. Well, for decades, North Central High School has had a thing called Junior Spectacular. Junior Spectacular, it may still be a thing, I don't know, but it was a production competition thing. What would happen would be about seven really talented musical people, or theater people, would all write their own one-act musical play is what they would write. And then those seven people would all ask their 50 best friends to act in it and to sing and dance in it. And once a year, they'd have the big junior spectacular production and everybody'd come and they'd judge and they'd like vote for the best female singer and all this, it was a big deal. They raised lots of money, I mean, it was a big deal. Well, when I was a junior, I didn't get asked to be a cast member by anybody. So I, you know, I didn't have a single friend who wasn't in one of those casts, but I didn't get asked. But I was in the pit band that played the music for the Junior Spectacular. So I had to go to all the rehearsals and the performances and play in the band. And when it ended, when the last performance ended, everyone went to one of their seven cast parties, but I didn't get asked to go to a cast party, not at all. And I have this distinct memory. This is burned in, in my mind that I was walking home. I lived a mile from North Central and I was walking home in the pitch dark on a Saturday night. And I was thinking something like this. Well, that proves it. I am completely invisible. I'm invisible. And I am on my own. I remember this so well, and I got home, and my mom heard me coming in, and she called out to me, and this was before, you know, cell phones and even answering machines, you know, if you just called a house, and if you got them, you got them, and if you didn't, and my mom says to me, hey, Arnie Book called earlier this evening and said to tell you he'd been thinking about you and wondered if you wanted to get together. He said if you got home too late, he'd see you tomorrow at church and maybe you two could hang out tomorrow afternoon. Arnie Book was the 22-year-old youth leader at our church. Why he called me that evening, I do not know. But he called, and that call let me know that I wasn't completely invisible. Arnie Book had made a habit out of reaching out to the lonely looking kids, the ones that needed a place of safety, And I was one of those kids, and Arnie was someone who had given his life to representing Jesus and had responded, I believe, to the Holy Spirit's leading that said, Tim needs a call. And he called. And what it told me was, I am not alone. Arnie would probably say, he didn't do anything special but it was special to me. And that call still resonates in my soul. It was exactly what I needed in that moment to let me know that there was hope, that the isolation that I felt could be overcome in the name of Jesus. And that feeling of having someone reach out and touch me in that way, in that moment 50 years ago, Still makes me the pastor that I am here at Grace. I'm just saying. Now I know that reaching out to others goes against what we're being told that we should be doing right now. We're not supposed to be risking our safety and our health to nurture others right now. But now is our time, Grace Church. Now is the time that we can begin being the place that heals the brokenness of isolation. It begins with phyloxenia. It's a phone call. It's a letter. It's a card to an older person. It's a bowl of ice cream in your driveway. And it can go a long way to getting phyloxenia started right here. Is hospitality hard work? You better believe it is. This kind of hospitality forces us to take risks and to change the way we think about who it is that's really in need and who is in our family, but I am confident that doing this hard work, making never alone a reality in our community, that is God's good, perfect, and pleasing will for this church in this moment. I'm just going to let Paul say it one more time. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality.